You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Revelation chapter 2 is on page 1029, and I got to say, Dan, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. I think our worship team was on fire in, in a good sense. And you know, that actually sets up, I think, what the focus is on these next two churches. This idea of fire is something that typically, as humans, we want to avoid. In fact, I was sharing with my wife this morning what I believe the main idea of these two churches is, and I told her it had something to do with fire, and she said, isn't that something we want to avoid? Well, yes and no, but if you look at the New Testament, you see that God actually uses fire to describe the Christian life quite a bit, doesn't he? He talks about the light that is set up on a hill, that is a torch that is up on a hill. He talks about the virgins and the lamps and the oil and how they were supposed to keep light on. He talks about how in 1 Peter chapter 1, God uses fire in our lives to refine us and to produce an authenticity and a genuineness. And so as Christians, this idea of fire is a natural one. As Christians, we are to be Yule logs that burn continually and consistently and brightly. But what I learned as a dad is that it's not just the logs and the extended fire that is important. So is the kindling. In fact, my wife and I decided that one of the great tools of bonding as a family would be a fire pit. And so we went out to Target, bought the fire pit, bought some logs at the grocery store. And I knew that somehow I needed to get those things on fire. So I got my big flamethrower, you know, the one with the trigger, and I, nothing. Went through one big flamethrower, trying to get those three logs to, to flame. And then I got some pine needles, some dry pine needles from our yard and piled those in. Surely that would get the logs started. And sure enough, those pine needles flamed very quickly and flamed out very quickly. Well, I poured some lighter fluid on those three blocks, deciding that this would show them, and they just simply allowed the lighter fluid to burn and then just mocked me. We, of course, sold the (laughs) fire pit. (laughs) But the lesson that I learned is that kindling is important. The lesson that I learned is that it is important to strategically plan the kindling, that it is important that the type of wood that you use for kindling, the amount of wood, the, the structure of the wood is important in order to make sure that those blocks of wood burn. They burn long, they burn bright, and they achieve their intended purpose. What we see in these two churches is an opportunity to evaluate kindling. And you can see in your notes that there is a big idea in this passage. The big idea is that the church and the world are combustible. I mean, we should not be surprised when there are flames, when the church does what it is supposed to do, when Christians do what they are supposed to do in the world, there is going to be fire. There is going to be combustion. But the opportunity that we have by looking at these next two churches is to ask ourselves the questions, who, what, why, and how are we kindled? 
Let me read the passage, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8, and then we will unpack this together. Beginning in verse 8, the words of Jesus are, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Two churches, a study of kindling. Number one, kindled by relationship, not religion. Kindled by relationship, not religion. It says in verse 8, to the angel. Now, let me just pause right here and do a little correcting. Last week, I poorly communicated what my conviction is, not only about what the name angel means here in these letters, but what angels actually can and can't do. I had a couple people ask me, do you believe, pastor, that angels can read our thoughts and our minds and our hearts? And the answer to that is absolutely not. But I think that last week I communicated maybe poorly or maybe mistakenly that some believe that I think that angels can. What I was trying to say is that angels are not bound by the physical limitations of our universe. In other words, when we gossip to someone else and then we turn around at church and we smile as though everything is great, the angels have been able to see us. The angels are able to see what we look at on the internet, what we choose to follow on social media. They can see all of that, whereas our parents or people in authority or others in our church may not be present. The angels are. They see us, and they add to the accountability that we should feel when we see that a church has given a letter written to angels. But it says to the church, the angel in the church in Smyrna. The, the, the city Smyrna was an interesting city. 
It initially was established on a hill. I had a friend that told me that it was often referred to as the crown of Asia. Maybe that's why Jesus says they will give the crown of life to the one who conquers. But as you study their history, it was a city on a hill that was actually destroyed and really did nothing for several hundred years until Alexander the Great came along. And he reestablished the city of Smyrna closer to the sea so that there was a harbor and a commerce similar to Ephesus. As Smyrna began to grow and become more powerful, the Roman Empire began to increase. And the Romans were faced with two challenges. One in the south was the city-state of Carthage. The other one was to the east, which was the Seleucid Empire. Smyrna, being a port city, being a powerful city, decided to be loyal to Rome and actually contributed to the defeat of the Seleucid Empire, therefore achieving a loyal status to Rome. In fact, one of the historians of Rome, one of their poets, Cicero, described Smyrna as one of their most loyal and most ancient allies. Therefore, Smyrna was tied intimately to Rome. So however Rome viewed the world, so did Smyrna. And that is important when we get to the topic of religion. Jesus says that he is the first and the last who died and came to life. Those are intentional references back to chapter 1. And he draws these aspects out to show that he himself is eternal. It's important to us that when we hear information or instruction from somebody, we understand their credentials. And the older we get, the more valuable it is that people that place wisdom into our lives have lifelong experience. Jesus is telling the people of Smyrna, a people who had a long history, that he himself predates them. That he himself has expertise that expands to the beginning of time. That he himself has faced tribulation and persecution. In fact, so much so that he himself died, and yet he is still alive. He has impeccable credentials. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. What is the tribulation that the people and the Christians of Smyrna were experiencing? Well, it was at the hands of those who said that they were Jews. Do you see that in the text? That's, that's a signal for us. And we've got to get into our little time machine to bridge the gap between the 21st century and the 1st century to understand what was going on in the Roman Empire and religion. The Romans were incredibly acceptable, accepting to other religions. In fact, they actually honored the religions of the nations that they conquered. In fact, they actually encouraged the worship of local nation or local gods by their citizens. In fact, demanded it even before they would worship the emperor. The Jews had a long history with Rome. They were an officially recognized religion by the Romans. The Romans, in some respects, respected the Jews, and the Jews, in most respects, tolerated the Romans. In fact, you can study the Gospels and you can study Acts and you can see that the religion of Rome and the religion of the Jews pretty much put up with each other. 
In fact, it's fascinating to study Jewish history to see that Jews were typically okay with other religions and other people around them so long as they were allowed to fulfill their traditions. Isn't that interesting? Now, in the early days of Christianity, the Romans viewed Christianity as a sect, S-E-C-T, of Judaism. And so they pretty much put up with the sect of Christianity. But the point that the Romans were uncompromising on is if you were going to disrupt the status quo. In fact, you can see this in John chapter 11. When Caiaphas stands up and they're evaluating Jesus and the movement of Jesus, and he says to the Sanhedrin, he is whipping the crowds up into a frenzy, so much so that Rome may come and take away our traditions, is essentially what he was saying. That was his fear. When you get to Acts and you see the accusations that the Jews made on Christians, it was that they were stirring up riots and upsetting the status quo. So with that history in mind, and now that we have a first century mindset, we can begin to understand what the accusation of the Jews was toward Christians, and that was disrupting status quo. The Jews were infuriated by Christianity because Christianity said, look, it isn't ultimately about your ethnicity. It isn't ultimately about your ceremonies and your traditions. It's ultimately about what those are intending to point toward, and that's Jesus Christ. And that infuriated the Jews. When you look at what frustrated the Jews in the Gospels and Acts, it was that Jesus was actually putting on display, the apostles were actually putting on display that Jesus is the true Israel. Would you write that down? And in doing so, what Jesus was doing, Matthew 5, 17, is not throwing away Israel, not throwing away their history, not throwing away the historical value that they had, but actually showing why they were valuable. They were valuable not because of Abraham, not because of Moses, not because of Passover and traditions and ceremonies, but because of their shadow status of pointing to the substance, which is Christ. And beloved, that reality actually teaches us how the Old and the New Testament comes together. But the Jews were infuriated by this. Because they thought this put them in second-class status. In some respects, this is kind of like the way God views men and women in the home and in church. This is what's happening in our modern day. Women are so upset with biblical Christianity because they think that somehow it relegates their status and their value before God. But the fact is, God has placed roles on men and women not because of their personhood or their value, but because of his glory. And the same thing is true with the Jews. I'm not an anti-Semite, but I do not believe that God has a future plan that is distinct and unique for Israel. I believe that the Gospels reveal that. I believe that the rest of the New Testament reveals that. And as we unpack Revelation, we will actually see, I think that's one of the points that John is making. The point isn't Israel. The point isn't even the church. The point, you can write this down, is Christ. And that infuriated the Jews of the Revelation days. And so they were stirring up 
strife in Smyrna against biblical Christians, against Christ followers to the degree that they were causing tribulation and poverty. And we'll unpack this even more when we get to the other churches, but here's what would happen. There would be sanctions against Christians. Christians could not participate in certain civil and social activities. Christians could not participate in certain economic activities. And that would create huge disruptions in their daily lives. It would create tribulation. It could even contribute to their, as verse 9 says, poverty. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Beloved, this is what I want us to home in on. Tribulation is intended to produce authenticity. Tribulation is intended to reveal genuineness. In fact, you can write this down, and I'll ask the team to put it up on the screen. Religion versus relationship is exposed when persecution is turned up, number one. Number two, when compromise is acceptable. Number three, when wealth is measured horizontally. And number four, when identity is in traditions or ceremony. It's interesting. Smyrna is one of only two of the seven churches that are only commended. There's no, I have this against you with Smyrna. Smyrna was faithfully enduring. They were going through tribulation, but what Jesus wants them to see is he peels back the curtains from heaven's perspective is the value and the source and the end game of tribulation. The source of tribulation is actually Satan himself. Isn't that interesting? In Smyrna. In fact, Jesus says, look, you are going to be thrown in prison by the devil. Not literally Satan, but this was his objective. This is the objective of the world system. The Jews who are claiming religion and throwing the religion card on the table with the Roman Empire are actually not genuine Jews. Because genuine Jews are the ones who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, here's a quote. It's two from where you would expect it, team, in the back. Jews that rely on their religion and not the completed work of Christ reveal they are not true Jews. You can write down Romans 2, verse 29, Romans 9, verse 6, and Galatians 6.16. To be a Jew was always a matter of faith, never ultimately a matter of ethnicity. To be a Jew was always somebody that was pointing toward the ultimate Jew, the true Jew, who is Jesus Christ. That was always the point of Judaism. That was why things were so upside down by the time Jesus came on the scene in the first century. Romans 9 says, not all who have descended from Israel, ethnic Israel, are actual Israel, spiritual Israel. Galatians 6.16, there is an Israel of God that is identified not by circumcision or ethnicity or ceremony, but by faith in Christ. Jesus wants them to be able to see this from his perspective. He wants them to understand they are going to suffer, but it is for the point of testing. It is for the point of revealing genuineness. Genuineness. 
In fact, there's an interesting nugget here. How long does it say that their tribulation will last? Look at the text. Ten days. Now, I think at a minimum, what Jesus is revealing here is that Jesus is the one who controls the duration. Isn't that awesome? I don't think this is a literal 10, 24-hour period. In fact, we know that because of the genre of Revelation. Jesus is saying, look, there will be a period of time that you are going to be persecuted, and I am the one who controls the bookends of that. I'm the one who controls every aspect of that. But the nugget is this. You can write down Daniel 1.12. When Daniel and his friends from Israel were told to eat of the king's portions and the king's meat, which would violate the Mosaic covenant, they stayed true to their convictions. And they said, we will eat only what God prescribes for how many days? Ten. I think that's interesting. But what is the point here? The point is the comparison between religion and relationship. Religion gets burnt up when persecution occurs. Now, are there people from other religions that are able to endure even to the point of death? Yes. But not in the way that God's word says we are to endure. God's word says we are to endure to the glory of God. God's word says that we rely on the gospel to get us through our tribulation. God's word says is that in the middle of our tribulation, we are to give testimony to and magnify the name of Christ. That is what patient endurance is. So you can write this down. The kindling of relationship always has the goal of revealing genuineness. Romans 8, 28 through 29 in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. I'll go back to the story of Daniel, and you can see Daniel was proven to be genuine after 10 days. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were proven to be genuine through the fiery furnace. Daniel was proven to be genuine through the lion's den. Smyrna would have the opportunity as well. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. And remember this, I I probably will remind us every time when I read this phrase, because this is so important, this is in the present tense, conquers, and it's referring back to John 16, 33, in the aorist tense, when Jesus, at one point in time, gained ultimate victory, he enables us as Christians to gain ongoing going victory. To the one who conquers, you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? That is eternal death in hell. Oh, friend, let's look at our kindling. When you are here participating in a religious activity, is this religion that is kindling you or relationship that is kindling you? Number two, kindled by faithfulness, not feeling kindled by faithfulness, not feeling. Verse 12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was the rival city of Ephesus. Pergamum was a city like Smyrna that enjoyed a history. The history went back once again to Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, his generals and his offspring were competing for the parts of the empire. And so one of the generals actually controlled 
the western part of Asia and put one of his officers in charge of Pergamum. Pergamum was where he stored his massive war chest. Well, that officer was faithful for a time. And as history often reveals, our faithfulness apart from Christ often will not last. And so that officer actually took that war chest and made a kingdom for himself. He declared himself king, and his subsequent sons were the kings of his empire until finally one son did not have an heir. That son actually willed upon his death Pergamum to the Roman Empire. They, like Smyrna, were extremely loyal to Rome and, in fact, celebrated the fact that in Asia they were the first city that was given the temple warden status that we talked about last week with Ephesus. Ephesus, as their rival city, quickly constructed their own temple to the emperor and got the temple warden status. But Pergamum said, no, we were first. So they quickly constructed another temple and they were given temple warden status second time. We are the only ones that have been given it two times, they declared. You can see this actually in inscriptions from archaeology. What did Ephesus do? Like every faithful rival, built another temple. You can see this could keep going on and on. But what's interesting is that the Pergamum inscriptions changed. And they said, we were the first to be awarded twice. And back and forth and back and forth. Now, why do I highlight this? Because I want to show that civil pride was tied intimately to Rome and pagan worship. It's interesting, the words that Jesus chooses to use here. He says that I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is. I'm going to ask the team to put a couple pictures up on the screen. One of them is the Acropolis, if we have that one. Acropolis is a massive city. It's not this one, maybe the other one. There we go. This is where Pergamum was. And up on the hill, this is a thousand foot tall hill. And up at the top were all of the temples. Up at the top were the temples to the Greek gods, were the temples to the Roman emperors, the temple to Rome. And so as you lived down in the valley, you were constantly reminded on a daily basis of the gods and of the emperor. But then it also says where Satan's throne is, and that's the picture that we just saw. And that was this temple to Zeus. It was an altar to Zeus, and it actually is in the shape of a throne. We don't know exactly if this is what Jesus was referring to, but from history, it was probably this combined with that massive reminder on a daily basis of the pagan religions and the emperor worship. I know where you dwell, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. Yet, look at this, they held fast to his name. You did not deny his name. In fact, that word denial is very important, isn't it? You can write down Matthew 10, 33, where Jesus says, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before the Father. We are not to deny Christ. And that's one thing when things are going well. It's another thing when the heat of persecution is turned up. It's interesting that one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, did deny, didn't he? But listen to this, not as a pattern of his life. Would you write that down? 
It's interesting that Jesus is more focused on patterns than he is snapshots. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about snapshots in our lives. And he will judge the snapshots in our lives, but he is evaluating us based on the patterns. And so Christians can deny Christ, but they are to repent when it is revealed to them that they have. You know, that's one of the ways that you can evaluate whether or not you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Not that you don't sin, but how do you respond when you realize that you've sinned? And it says here that the Christians in Pergamum, as a pattern of their lives, did not deny Jesus' faith, even in a day that was memorable to them when one of their own, Antipas, was killed among you. Friends, we know about this concept of fight or flight, don't we? And I know that has a psychological context, but think about how it is in our lives as 21st century Americans when we experience something uncomfortable. We usually quickly either complain or we work to change it or we run away, don't we? We do that with our temperatures. I hear that about the auditorium. It's freezing. It's hot. Try to stand up on the stage where there's lights shining on you and you have a bald head. When we're uncomfortable, we we typically try to solve it. We typically try to remove it where we typically complain about it. What Jesus is revealing here is that his discomfort in our lives is intended for our good and for his glory. By the way, incidentally, when we talk about Revelation, we often think about the tribulation and we think it to be a seven-year period, three and a half of pretty bad and then three and a half of really bad. But I want to remind us as we look at these churches that Jesus doesn't intend to remove his people from tribulation. He actually intends to use tribulation in our lives to reveal genuineness. Now, I know we'll get to a church where it seems like that statement that I just made is blown out of the water, but that's why we don't study scripture one verse at a time, but one entire Bible at a time. So there is fight or flight. And we saw in Smyrna their major tool of God to produce and reveal genuineness. But the world and Christianity are combustible. How do we prepare ourselves for the kindling of persecution? How do we prepare ourselves for the kindling of faithfulness so that when persecution comes, we are faithful and we don't flee? Well, let me give you some suggestions by inviting you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 actually provides some incredible kindling that will light the flame of faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. See, there's that concept of revelation. This idea is don't run until it gets hard because just know that Jesus is going to remove you from the persecution and the tribulation. No, the Christian life is intended to be lived with endurance going through tribulation. He says we run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. God didn't remove the cross. In fact, Jesus actually prayed for that, didn't he? Rapture me from this cross. That's not what he prayed, but it's the concept. And the father responded by saying, it's not my will. My will is that you endure. And for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Four instructions for us to kindle faithfulness. Number one, root out sin. I know many of you know Ursula McCarthy. She's our associate director of biblical soul care. She led a devotion this last week for our staff meeting where she went through these steps to make sure that we are in a healthy walk with Christ. And the first one was evaluate your life to see if anything shouldn't be there. Now, there's a whole process of evaluating what should and what should not be there. And that process should be at the center what the scriptures say. But how often do we do this in our lives? How often do we critically and intentionally evaluate our lives to see, is there anything that shouldn't be there? What shouldn't be there are the things that distract us from the glory of Christ. The things that lead us toward the world. The things that remove our investment in doctrinal purity. We'll see that in Pergamum in just a moment. But the author of Hebrews says, we must run our race with endurance and we must do so by rooting out sin. But number two, we must make sure that our measurement is Jesus. Now, the Jesus of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, again, I'm not going to call out individual churches this Sunday, but there are churches who would say, yes, look to Jesus, but it is a Jesus of their design. It is a Jesus of picking and choosing what they say is Jesus. It's a Jesus of limiting the books of the Bible that talk about Jesus. Listen, Jesus is found from Genesis to Revelation. Every passage points us to Jesus. I love what Spurgeon said. It's something like this. This is in my notes. I'm going to summarize. But Jesus said, not every passage mentions Jesus, but I will take every passage like a highway and jump to get to him. If we want to know who Jesus is, if we want to measure our lives by Jesus, then we must become intimately familiar with him from Genesis to Revelation, and then we know that's the real Jesus. Number three, we must redefine joy. We're coming into a season that talks about joy, don't we? In fact, we have a, a house that we pass on 159th that has a big joy lit up by the pond. Light it up, lit it up. I don't know. I'm 48 now, so I have an excuse. But we talk about joy a lot during the Christmas season. And I don't know about you, but if I take the world's definition of joy, I think it's absurd that the author of Hebrews would say, for the joy that was set before Jesus endured the cross. See, joy must be redefined biblically. Joy is not necessarily a feeling as much as it is a settled disposition. 
It is a settled disposition that is rooted in the character of God so that no matter what circumstances I have, I can actually have a settled joy that my God is in control, that my circumstances have the opportunity for me to glorify him, that this is an opportunity for me to see him in a unique way that other circumstances would not afford. That is joy. If we are rooting out sin, if we are measuring by Jesus, if we are redefining joy, but then number four, we are thoroughly meditating on Jesus. Then verse three of Hebrews 12 says, we will be able to not grow weary or faint-hearted when tribulation comes. Now, thankfully, the example of Pergamum is that Like Antipas, they were faithful witnesses to the outside world. They were actually modeling Jesus. You can write down chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus is said to be the faithful witness. And so, friends, when we are faithful witnesses, when we experience tribulations and trials, we are actually reflecting Jesus, demonstrating genuineness. Sounds like an amazing church, doesn't it? They were kindled by faithfulness and not fleeing. But number three, there's an interesting twist. This is a negative. The first two are positive, but the negative is they were kindled by compromise, not confronting. Kindled by compromise, not confronting. Verse 14, like our study of Ephesus, there is an emphatic contrast in the Greek. It is the but conjunction that should alert the reader to a significant, emphatic contrast. Even though things were going very well as it related to their outside testimony, he says, but emphatically, I have a few things against you. Now, what he says here ultimately is that Pergamum was not protecting doctrine in the church. This has happened throughout church history. I said I wasn't going to do this, but I am. The Methodist denomination has such a rich history, such a rich beginning with Jonathan Wesley, but through the years became so focused on social and outward that they did not protect doctrinal integrity, and we see that massively, not by every Methodist church, by what's going on, though, however, in the United States Methodist church on the whole. And while they are doing good things to the world and the society around them, and listen, we need to actually learn from that, they have not protected doctrinal integrity inside, and they are bastardizing Scripture. Not everyone, but the majority. So that was ultimately the path that Pergamum was on. And they were compromising. He mentions two teachings that are the same. The first one he refers to as the teaching of Balaam, drawing their attention back to the Old Testament. And then the other one is the Nicolaitans, which is the modern, their contemporary term for it. I believe it's the same movement, but John is using an Old Testament and a modern context for the readers to understand what was at stake and what was going on. Let's look at the Old Testament very quickly, the idea of Balaam. Some of you might know Balaam. You might know that he was the one who had his donkey talk to him. I believe literally. But there was so much more to it. You can write down Numbers 22 through 24, and you can look at this later. And what happened is that Balak, the king of Moab, 
hired Balaam to actually curse the people of God because Balak was looking at all of the different battles that Israel had as they were heading toward their promised land and they were defeating these massive armies, these powerful nations. And Balak realized, hey, listen, my army is not going to be able to defeat them. So I've got to try a different tactic. I'm going to try a spiritual tactic. I'm going to try to have their powerful God actually curse them. So he hires Balaam and offers him some cash, a lot of it. He offers him a contract, if you you will, that he and his posterity will never have to work. And Balaam is intrigued by that. He says, I'll go talk to God. God says, no, I'm not going to let you curse. I don't want to hear anything more about it. We're done here. Balak raises the ante and he says, listen, I'm going to actually send princes. I'm going to give you, you want to add some more zeros to the contract? I'll add more zeros. And Balaam's like, hmm, I know God said no, but maybe there's a chance. So he went back two more times and God said again what he had said the first time. I'm not going to let you curse my people. That's, that's important, beloved. That what I'm doing is I'm actually setting up what the teaching of Balaam is. And so finally, chapter 24 ends, and it says that Balaam leaves, Balak leaves, but that's not the end of the story because Scripture interprets Scripture. You can write down Numbers 31, 8 through 16. 8 and 16, we find out that Balaam is actually killed when the Midianites are killed, and we find out in verse 16 why he was killed. Because when God said, don't curse my people, Balaam got creative. Why did Balaam get creative? Because he wanted the money. He wanted comfort. He wanted compromise. And when we piece the scriptures together, we understand that what Balaam said is, listen, I know that God will curse his people if his people violate God's commandment. And so here's what you got to do. Dress up your women in a way that will allure the sons of Israel. Appeal to their lust of their flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And sure enough, the sons of Israel did it. And sure enough, God was faithful to his commands and cursed Israel in chapter 25. Now, what is this revealing? This is revealing that in Pergamum, Christians were allowing a teaching that was using scripture and twisting it to somehow be comfortable with the world. They were trying to use scripture to free their conscience to be able to participate in the world. And listen, we can acknowledge by looking at the rest of scripture and also history and see that Christians and Jews over time would say that they could participate in pagan activities as long as it was only political to them and not spiritual. The problem was is that the Christians in Pergamum were allowing compromise. Here's a quote. In effort to avoid hurting business or social influence or potential opportunity for future platform, they avoided confronting and they just compromised. I mean, look, look, look at this. This is actually commendable at some level, isn't it? We do want to have a platform for the gospel, don't we? 
We, we do want to be able to have economic status that will allow us to give to the church and be generous. I mean, all of these things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad, but here's another quote. When it comes to loyalty to Christ and living by his standards, there is no room for compromise. This is where the line is. If it means that you have to violate God's standards and violate the majesty of Christ in the way that you think, speak, and live, even if you think there is a worthy end game, there's no place for compromise. And one of the phrases that Christians will, or at least professing Christians will often use is, hey, let's find middle ground with the world. And usually what they mean by that is compromise. Jesus says in John 16, don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first. Now that does not mean that we go out and foolishly look for tribulation. It does not mean that we are foolish in the way that we interact with the world. It means that we live out Matthew 10, 16 to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But the fact is, is that many professing Christians, like Pergamum, in their efforts to be able to be in a comfortable place, to have economic status, to be able to have platforms to do good in the society, have compromised the truth of God's word and compromised the name of Christ. Jesus says in verse 16, very simply, repent. There's no place for it. We can't argue ourselves out of it. We can't be pragmatic about this. Repent, turn from it. Your mind, your speech, your behavior, the patterns must change. And he says, if you don't repent, listen, I'm going to judge. That's the two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth. And I'm coming swiftly to judge these false teachers. But you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to confront. Ah, friends, this is a theology that I'll just plant for you and hopefully it'll bear fruit. God will accomplish his will no matter if we participate. But the privilege is ours to participate. So listen, your neighbor, if they are elect, will be saved. They will. And if you choose to shut your mouth and to not let them know about Christ, they're going to be saved despite you, but the privilege is yours to participate and to partner. And what Jesus is saying, look, is they're going to be judged. I'm just inviting you to participate. So how do we confront? Well, very quickly, here's a few ways. Number one, we confront with Christ reflecting humility. That is the definition of humility. It is thinking of others more highly than ourselves through the lenses of the gospel. It is understanding that sometimes the kindest thing to do is actually tell someone they're in sin and then quickly give them a solution. Christ reflecting humility, number two, it must be based on biblical truth. Not just a verse here or a proof text there, but a developed understanding of what Scripture teaches. And then number three, the goal is building up toward Christ. 
I've shared this with you before, but one of my seminary professors reminded me that when we are sharing true doctrine, when we are refuting error, when we are trying to teach someone, our end game is not to win the argument. Our end game is not to prove that we are right. Our end game is to build them up toward Christ. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. (laughs) This is a tough one. And I'm running out of time, so let me just tell you what I think it means. I think that Jesus has already had the church of Pergamum in an Old Testament mindset by talking about Balaam, and I think he's drawing back to manna. I think you also have to remember John 6, that this same author, John, in John 6, referred to manna, that Jesus is the bread of life. And I think he's drawing from that and then going to a historical context of a white stone. A white stone was either used as a sign of acquittal in judicial proceedings or as a ticket to a special event. And I think he's bringing both of those together. And I think what he's doing here is he's setting up what we will read later on. I believe it's Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that to the one who conquers will give evidence that they are genuine Christ followers. And when the marriage supper of the Lamb comes, they will have access. And written on that white stone will be their new name. Not for me individually, but who am I identified with? And that is Christ. And for the Jews, it's Christ. For the Gentiles, it's Christ. For the representatives of every tribe, tongue, and nations, Revelation 5, 9, it is Christ. And it will be the name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Kindling is important. God wants us to burn bright. He wants us to burn long. He wants the blaze of our fire to draw others to Christ. But kindling and how we get that fire lit is so important. And through the examples of Smyrna and Pergamum, you have an opportunity to evaluate how are you kindled? Who is kindling you? What is your kindling and why? And friend, maybe you've never been kindled for Christ. Today is your opportunity. Would you take this moment, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin, and ask God to forgive you and trust that he will because of Christ's completed work? Then will you surrender to him as your king and Lord? He will transform you and start your log a-burning. And then, friends, if your log has been burning, how is it doing? Maybe it's starting to die out. Maybe it's starting to dim Well, this is an opportunity to reflect on our kindling. Is there an opportunity this morning for you to recalibrate, maybe to repent, but to get back to a place where your log is pointing people to Christ, that the name you have written on your stone is not your name or this church's name, but Christ, Christ, Christ.